Hello, and welcome to the Kingdom Corner Podcast, where you can propel your faith into even deeper levels as we discuss how to live the kingdom culture on earth as it is in heaven, just as Jesus prayed. Here's your host, the great Matt Geib. Good day, good day, Kingdom Corner Podcast devotees and followers. The great Matt Geib here with you once again from the bright, sunny, yet still cool Pacific Northwest. And I'm excited today because we're getting back into the book of Philippians. We've just started this book. Uh, We're in the second half of chapter one. Uh, We're starting at verse 27 today, and we're going to go through chapter two, verse four, hopefully. And the title of this lesson or message that I've had here is Rallying Around Unity, Contending Together for the Faith. Rallying Around Unity, Contending Together for the Faith. And I'm just going to read the passage. We began to get into this last week, and we we only we didn't even finish uh, cha- uh, verse 27. So that was kind of an introduction, talking about how God is so concerned about unity and order and oneness in the body of Christ. We gave a number of examples in the Bible to show how concerned God is for that. And now we're going to get into these other verses, hopefully, and dissect some of the beautiful thoughts. And the tenor of this whole passage here is unity. That's why the title I came up with, Rallying Around Unity, Uh, is about unity. And we're going to see that as we get into some of the individual words in each verse. Uh, I do an exegesis, that means I exit out from the Scripture, the truths, and I use the King James Version simply because the other books that I use, the other references to look at the Hebrew-Greek words, to look at the commentators, they all kind of run off of the King James Version. Otherwise, I'd probably use the New American Standard Version. Uh, They all key in on the King James Version words. Uh, However, you know, we'll bring in the other words from better translations if we feel necessary, or from the original Hebrew and Greek. So that's why we do that. So let me once again read this passage, and then we'll go verse by verse. Verse 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that of God. For unto you it is given an in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me, and now here to be in me. Chapter 2, verse 1. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem the other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That's the reading of the word, chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 27 through chapter 2, and we read through verse 4. 
And now we'll begin to go into this verse by verse. As I said, um, this passage here, I believe all the thoughts really uh, all point to being in unity, standing fast in one spirit, as verse 27 says, striving together to have the unity of the faith. And as I said before in previous lessons, the Philippian church, the church at Philippi was a very, very good church. Uh, probably you'd give them a A- minus or B-plus in how well they uh, looked as a church, how well they presented the gospel of Christ. And Paul really, really loved them, uh, had a really tender spot in his heart for them. They didn't cause him many problems like we talked about last week about the Corinthian church, which was the opposite. A real mess, um, but they were very good to him. They supported him. We'll get into that more in chapter four when Ephroditus goes and sees Paul where he's at in Rome under house arrest. But there began to arise a small problem of disunity that Paul begins to address here, and he begins to address it here in this chapter. And we're going to start to look at that. And it, it had arisen from two women uh, in the Philippian church a lady by the name of Udiah, and another one by the name of Syntyche. And we don't know exactly what their beef was, what their problem was with each other. Some said they were both soloists and they were jealous of each other's ministry. We don't know if that's really true. Uh, one, one minister said, uh, kind of as a, a takeoff on their names, Udiah would be like, uh, uh, like odious. He called her odious because she had a certain smell about her that wasn't pleasant. And Syntyche would be soon touchy, uh, somebody that was overly sensitive. We can relate to people in the body of Christ. We probably, if we've been in the church long enough, you've been around some odious or people that you just, their smell wasn't too good. And I don't necessarily mean body odor either. And they were very sensitive people, overly sensitive. And we'll see more of that specifically in chapter 4. So that's what he's beginning to address. So verse 27, let's break down some of the words here for you. Only let your conversation, and a lot of translations say conduct, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only, when we start out verse 27 and only with that word, it connects the previous exhortation that we talked about um, when we when we were were in um, ch uh, the first part of the the chapter, verses one to thirteen, uh, uh, and verses twenty three to twenty six, especially uh, where we saw that Paul was expressing his heart, how he felt like he was between a rock and a hard place about whether he should re remain with them because he had such a heart to minister to them, he wanted to meet their needs that way, or. Um, Go to be with Jesus in heaven. You remember the scripture. It's 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 one that Christians know. You know, uh, for me to live is Christ, uh, but to die is gain. And we talk quite a bit about that. A lot of Christians have the Eeyore view of that. You know, they're going through things, and well, if I die, I'm with Christ. You know, whether I live, I'm with. You know, uh, to live is Christ, but if I die, it's gain. But Paul wasn't saying that that way. We did, we we always felt like. Either way, he felt like he had it made, because he loved to minister to them. It was his joy, even though he was in prison, but he also would have loved to have been face-to-face -face with Jesus. In the end, as we saw in that uh, lesson where we talked uh, talked about that, um, uh, advancing through advers adversity was the name of that lesson, uh, verses uh, 1 through 26, uh, 
you know, he decided that they needed him and he should stay with them, uh, God willing. He know they he knew that they needed his ministry, and whether his salvation or deliverance, if, if he was going to get out of house arrest, was physical or, you know, taking, you know, him to heaven, uh, he, he, he could get, be free either way. Free from house arrest or not, he was confident that they would be able to continue uh, his ministry to them, and that was what he was to do. He was thinking that he should stay and continue his ministry to them. That's kind of the conclusion he came to. Openness of heart. Let me see. That's the next phrase. Whether I come to see you or be absent, uh, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind and one faith, uh, striving together for one faith of the gospel, required an openness of heart by the Philippians. Uh, that was needed as Paul now begins to address the basic spiritual needs of the church, the rubber meet the road principles that we're going to begin to dissect today. And they're provided throughout the rest of this letter to correct a few certain things. And one about this conflict between these two women, especially, uh, to, to correct those things in their lives and maybe provide, uh, speak into some things that they were lacking. Conversation, only let your conversation, like I said, a better transfer, uh, translation would be conduct. Uh, the Old Testament use of the word, or I should say New Testament Greek use of this word in that time, Paul's time, conversation Conversation to us means talk between two people, okay? Conversation back then meant more of uh, the life you were living, your conversation, your lifestyle. That's what it spoke of. Uh, King James Version uses conversation had a different meaning, like I just said. It didn't just mean uh, discourse, you know, talking between two people. A better rendering then is a manner of life, a behavior, or conduct. However, we can dig deeper and find more. It's interesting, this word conversation in the Greek is polytuemi, polytuemi. And this is the word where we get our word politics from. Isn't that interesting? Polytuemi. It referred to public duties devolving on a person as a member of a body of people. Polytuemi. So it was a political word. Acts 23.1 is a cross-reference. I have lived, polytuemi, or conducted myself as a worthy citizen of heaven. And the group that we're talking about that, you know, we're a part of is the citizenship of heaven. That's what we're talking about. That our conduct, our way of life, or our behavior should reflect that of a citizen that's of the heavenly realm, of the heavenly group, as it were. That's what we're talking about here. Further meaning, this word polytumai means to manage the state, steward, to steward your estate. How are you doing that with today, heavenly citizen? How are you managing your affairs in this world? Uh, how are you stewarding your finances? How are you stewarding your secular job if you have one or your family? That's what it's talking about. Here it speaks of citizenship of heaven. That is, live as the citizens of heaven would, exuding in your life and the metron in which you live, heavenly attributes. How are we doing with that? Are you a good steward of your money? Are you a good steward with your family? Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, um, you know, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed or have your mind and heart renovated 
you know, by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is, uh, you know, that you may prove what is acceptable, that you may, that, that which is, actually, I'm saying it wrong, which is um, your spiritual worship is the real meaning, the real Greek meaning of Romans 12, 2 there. It's your spiritual worship. Why? Because our whole life, however we steward ourselves, whatever area, is to portend, it is to be a laid down life of worship in the way we conduct ourselves. That's what he's talking about. Um, this is an epistle about joy and, and having the joy of, of Jesus and what we called it in the beginning, Philippians, the primer for joy. And yet with a little disunity, with a little misunderstanding about how to conduct yourself as a citizen of heaven should, can take away from that. We talked last week not about the small apple. I meant to say Michael Jackson's word was the, of the song was one bad apple— don't spoil the whole bunch, girl, but it does. One bad apple. We talked about how if you leave it in a bucket very long, it'll rot the rest of the apples. And, you know, another example I thought of, too, that's very timely is in the Old Testament, you know, uh, God said, enter, overcome, and occupy to um, to to Joshua. They were going to finally go into the promised land. And they went in there, and they were going against all these nations and overcoming them. Uh, one one nation after another, God was giving them the victory. They entered the land, they overcome, and they occupied that territory because uh, they were in unity. They were in harmony. They they were as one, and yet one bad apple spoiled it for them. Remember when they went up against the little nation of Ai, the little country of Ai? Uh, for one thing, I thought they were overconfident when you read that passage. But the other thing is there was one guy— who was out of harmony with them. Remember Achan? Was it Achan? Yeah. He, uh, they, Joshua said, now you go in and we take all the spoil, we take it and we divide it amongst ourselves, and I'm over that, and the leaders are over that. But he did not follow that word. He stole some of that, you know, the booty, we would say, for himself. And uh, they were defeated by that little little nation of Ai, and Joshua had to go before the Lord, and God said that's because somebody wasn't in harmony. That one was Achan. He held back uh, from the rest of the group. He wasn't transparent. You know, he, he kept some of the booty for himself. And so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about how important unity is and how just a little a little attitude or a little thing that you have wrong uh, the way you look at something, the way you relate to somebody, uh, can spoil the harmony and the unity of the whole group. The use of politeiumai is a play on words here. As Philippi was a Roman colony, and being a good citizen of Rome was imperative. You know, so Paul was making the metaphor to heaven, being a good citizen of heaven. Uses this, Paul uses this to show our relationship to being good citizens of heaven. The use of this specialized word here colors the rest of the epistle, giving it a heavenly atmosphere. We are to be conducting ourselves as heavenly people with a heavenly destiny and a heavenly origin with a responsibility, and we're going to get into that more here, of living here on earth as being of the heavenly realm in the midst of ungodly people and surroundings. And that's shown by, again, how we steward ourselves in every area of life. 
bringing an atmosphere of heaven to earth. Let's look at some cross-references. Philippians 3, verse 20, But we are citizens of heaven, whether the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly awaiting for him to return as our Savior. See, even though we're living on earth, we're citizens of heaven. We walk physically in this world, but we're really of the heavenly realm, are we not? Okay? Our body is here, yet our citizenship is in heaven. Revelation 3.12, All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God. They will never have to leave it, and I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be, listen, citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, that comes down from the heaven from my God, and I will write on them a new name. Our responsibility, then, is to be living as citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Kingdom. Only let your conversation, we'll go back to that phrase, or conduct, be worthy of the gospel. The construction of the Greek language in this phrase here conveys stepping up to one's spiritual responsibility as heavenly citizens, being responsible, being responsible to exhort ourselves and live in such a way to live this way daily, to live a life of uh, maturity in Christ. Let your conversation or conduct be worthy of the gospel, the King James Version says. And then the next phrase, as it becometh, as it becometh. Becometh in the Greek literally means, the phrase, that word means to have the weight of or weighing as much as another thing. Having the weight of or weighing as much as another thing. Becoming the gospel or worth as much. Okay, so we'll read it this way. Literally to have the weight of, weighing as much of, it means having the weight of, the value of the gospel. It's a weighty word. Saints are to see to it that their manner of life, the way they live as heavenly citizens, weighs as much as the gospel they profess to believe, or their words will carry no weight. So I'd ask you today, as a Christian, out there in your society, out there in your town where you live, whether it's in the USA or another part of the world, how much weight does your word carry? Are you just full of hot air? Um, as my grandfather just used to tell me as a young man, he said, Matthew, uh, I can't hear what you're saying. Your attitude isn't right because your um, actions speak so much louder than your words. You know, are, are your words matching up with your conduct? the way you live your life, or are you a hypocrite? You know, sometimes I have to say, I've been hypocritical. I've been wrong. You know, that's what he's talking about. Uh, I think of the word kabod, which is the glory of God. The basic word in the Hebrew means heavy, heavy. So the way we are to live is a serious thing. It can be a heavy thing. I don't mean it for you to be overburdened, but it's a heavy responsibility. You need to take that spot responsibility in a serious manner, right? And that it weighs something, that you're not just spouting off words that don't mean anything, that they have some weight, that, that, your, um, that your words are backed up by your action. Let's look at some cross-references. Philippians 4, 22 to 24. You took off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. 
You are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. You put on the new self, the one created to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. HCSB, that's the translation I like to read sometimes. Have you really put off your old life? Have you really put off your old ways? You know, I know we all have a new nature. We're brand new. Uh, The old nature is dead. And yet, like I shared one time in Ephesians class, you know, Sometimes we put on those old clothes that are comfortable, those old ways of doing things instead of burning them, and we don't walk in the new man. That's where the problem lies. Uh, Conversation in uh, this verse, let's look here when we're talking about conversation, put off your former way of life or former conversation, the King James would say in Ephesians 4, that word, we pronounce that in Greek, anastrophe, anastrophe. It's, again, it's a little bit different of a Greek word, but it kind of means the same things of, as politumai, putumai, or, uh, or, or the word becometh, I should say, kind of means uh, the same thing as those words, in, in that it's talking about a manner of life. It's talking about conduct, how we conduct ourselves. See Philippians, let's see, no, see these cross-references. I'll just give them to you. 1 Timothy 4.12. Hebrews 13, 5 to 7, John 3, 13, 1 Peter 1, 15 to 18, 1 Peter 3, 1 to 2, 2 Peter 2, 7, and 2 Peter 3, 11. Let me read those again. 1 Timothy 4, 12, Hebrews 13, 5 to 7, John 3, 13, 1 Peter 1, 15 to 18, 1 Peter 3, 1 to 2, 2 Peter 2, 7, and 2 Peter 3, 11. A good uh, cross-reference study on, on conversation or your manner or way of life can be seen in those scriptures. I'll let you go look them up. I'm not going to go into all the cross-references today. Let's go into the next phrase. That you stand fast. That is, be firm and upright in holding one's ground. You stand fast, be firm and upright in holding one's ground. The implication here is there's an enemy we all must confront. The the enemy, the demons, the devil, you know, his evil angels, as it were. When you become a Christian, you enter a spiritual battle. See Ephesians 6, 10 to 12, you know, putting on the whole armor of God. Here Paul begins to address the attack on unity that was coming against the Philippian church. They had to stand fast against it, or the group could be fractured into disunity and disharmony. Uh, Stand fast, be of one spirit. This speaks of the unity of the spirit, which the body of Christ is to be fused and blended in with. Of course, it's produced in our hearts, uh, by the Spirit of God and the influence of the Holy Spirit on our heart, is it not? Uh, Be of one mind, okay? Be of one mind. Uh, Be of one mind. Greek translation, soul, is a better word. Our reasons, our will, our emotions are in view here. This is where exertion takes place as we make up our mind or our will to do something as we are influenced by God and not the world, okay? So that's mind. We're standing in one mind. Let's go on. Striving or contending is a good word. Striving. Sinatheolos. Sinatheoloi. Sinatheolo. Sinatheolo. 
or synothelois. Either way, it's used in the Greek. And it was used, uh, it's a beautiful picture, a beautiful word picture, if you can get it. It was used of an athletic contest. Our words, athlete and athletic, come from this word, synothelois. The Greek language conveys a powerful picture of an athletic team when they're striving together. They're working together in perfect coordination to win a competition or win a game. See Luke 13:24. See Romans 15:30. I'll say it again. Luke 13:24, Romans 15:30 for good cross references. But here I'm beginning to think one of the things I love about Paul so much is I think just like me, I I'm a bit of a um I don't get as caught up in it anymore, but I'm a bit of a a sports fan. I like football. I like I watch a little baseball with my mother, and I especially like the Olympics when they're on. I think Paul was a sports fan. I think he must have been in some of those arenas and seen some of the Olympic contests, the races. He talks about racing toward the prize. He talks about beating his body. That means to me like maybe he's working out. He talks about even – he alludes even to boxing. So I think he liked the athletic contests, and he could make the metaphor to our spiritual walk uh, before God, could he not? So Paul is exhorting the Philippians to work together in perfect coordination like a team of Greek athletes toward a common goal or prize. Paul, like I said, must have been a sports fan. He is always using athletic ma metaphors to expound upon the Christian life. Give you some more scriptures. See 1 Timothy 4, 7-10, 2 Timothy 2, 5. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 26, Philippians 3, 12, and that's the one where he says, uh, I press toward the mark of the high calling of Christ that I might win the prize. Hebrews 12, 1, Ephesians 6, 12, all those verses. 1 Timothy 4, 7 to 10, 2 Timothy 2, 5, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 26, Philippians 3, 12, Hebrews 12, 1, Ephesians 6, 12. So that's such a beautiful picture, the striving together like a team, you know. When you're a team of winning athletes, you can't all go different ways. You have to work together, a basketball team, a football team, even baseball team, you know. <clears throat> Let me see. I love the way Kenneth Wiest, uh, the Greek scholar, rendered this verse, verse 27. Only since – only – that is, since my only reason for remaining on earth is for your progress in the Christian life, see to it that you recognize your responsibility as citizens of heaven and put yourselves to the absolute necessity of performing the duties devolving upon you in that position, doing this in a manner which is befitting to the gospel of Christ, in order that whether having come and having seen you, or whether being absent, I am hearing the things concerning you, namely that you are standing firm in one spirit, holding your ground with one soul, and then here's the phrase, contending as a team of athletes would, in perfect cooperation with one another for the faith of the gospel. Philippians 1.27, the New Testament expanded translation, Kenneth S. Wiest. I love that translation of that verse. Let me read that one portion again. Namely, that you are standing firm in one spirit, holding your ground with one soul, contending as a team of 
athletes would, in perfect coordination or cooperation with one another for the faith of the gospel. Ooh, that's powerful. We're talking about recognizing and stepping up to one's responsibility. Contending together is taking on responsibility, taking upon your shoulders as a man or woman that's highly favored by God. Uh, contending together as a responsible citizen of heaven. We've talked about how a citizen of heaven should conduct themselves, how they should steward their life. And, you know, one of the books that I read last year that was so good uh, was called Extreme Ownership by uh, two Navy SEALs. And they talked about if you're really a leader, and really in one sense or another we're all leaders— you're leading your own life today. You may not have a group of people you're really leading, but you're leading your own life by the way you live it. You're leading out, or you may have a dog you're leading. However it is, takes the the knowing that you have to take responsibility for your life, knowing that you have to take ownership. That's what they talked about in Extreme Ownership, these SEALs. They said, uh, in the end, it was the guy that was leading, no matter what happened. If the mission failed... If the mission succeeded, it was because of the, a course of cooperation of the people. But if it failed, it all hung on the one leader. You know, he had to take responsibility uh, for, you know, everything that happened. He couldn't pass the buck and put it off on somebody else and say, well, they failed to do this. They failed to do that. Well, if they did, it all went back to him that he didn't explain it well enough to them. Extreme ownership. Extreme ownership means leadership that takes extreme ownership of what of everything they're doing. That's what he's talking about. It's your responsibility, you know, as a leader to take extreme ownership. And that means even if you're under a group of leaders in a church, uh, an, an elder or a pastor, and you don't understand the mission, as a leader, it's up to you to go to them and have them lay it out to you. You know, you can't just sit back passively and say, oh, I don't understand. If I screw up, it's their fault. No, it's not. It's, it's on you. It's on you. That's what we're talking about. Okay? Extreme ownership. Let's go on to verse 28. We're waxing long here, and we just now finished the main uh, words in verse 27. Verse 28, And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. Uh, he words, uses the word terrified here in the King James Version, in nothing terrified. Terrified was used by the Greeks to describe the terror of a startled horse. You know, if they were on the cobble streets there of Jerusalem or Rome or Philippi and a horse was in terror, they'd see it out of control running down the street and it might you might be terrified by that because if that horse ran into you as big as it was, it could really hurt you. That's the picture he's talking about. Adversaries here is Paul referring to the pagan idolaters in Philippi who were opposing the saints. Nothing being terrified. In other words, don't be terrified by the pagans there in Philippi. Why? Uh, which is... Um, Nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition. Let's look at that. Evident token. That's a law term that denotes proof, which is obtained by an appeal to facts which were that of God. In other words, they could see God in those people's lives. You know, they could connect that to verse 27, which we just talked about, the striving together. 
this evident token. They could see the teamwork. They could see the unity of, of, of the church was an evident token, a possible illusion also, an evident token about how they were working together for the gospel in love and harmony. You know, it was a token to those that were pagans, that there was something of God going on there. It's also a possible allusion to a gladiator's contest in the amphitheater. The Christian gladiator knows God is the director of the conduct, uh, of the, I'm not saying conduct, of the contest, and has given him a sure, evident token of deliverance. Even though it looks scary, the contest, the gladiator, you know, um, contest they were going to have, the, the battle they were going to have, um, they could be confident of God's deliverance. The idea of verse 27, or I'm sorry, the idea of verse 28 convey, conveys is that the saints in Philippi have not allowed themselves to be scared by antagonism from the pagan community, and thus that was clear evidence to the pagans. See, the pagans knew they weren't scared of them, that they, the pagans, were on the road to hell, and the saints were clearly saved. In other words, they saw such a faith in the church and such confidence and unity and lack of fear, that that in itself was a, a token to them, evidence to them that they themselves were on the wrong path if they would only open up and see that, right? First Peter three, First Peter 2.12, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, they, these pagans around Philippi would see the good works of the Philippians, and they would know it was of God. Let's read um, 1 Peter three twelve to 17 The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their request. But the face of the Lord, the face of the Lord, is against those who do evil and will and who will harm you if you are deeply committed to what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be disturbed, but honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give a good defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. However, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping your conscience clear." So that when you are accused, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than doing evil. Some cross-references there to verse 28. Let's go to verse 29 then. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but to also suffer for his sake. Let me read that again. Unto you it is given... This is a promise in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but to suffer for his sake. Four connects the thought from the previous verse 28 on being in fear. Uh, for unto you it is given, the it has been graciously, the it has been graciously given to you, just like the free gift of salvation given to you. This it means on behalf of or in place of. The it then it has been graciously, let's say it this way, the it then means it has been graciously given to the saints to suffer not only for the sake of, but in the place of Christ. The point, suffering from pagans, the enemy, those against the gospel, may cause terror. However, 
when viewed in God's light, it was really a gift of God's grace and not evil. So we're taking this further. We're saying that uh, Christians, the flip by church, us as well, we may suffer physical and verbal persecution. It, it, it's part of the, part of the uh, contract, so to speak. That's what it says here. Uh, it says in another scripture, all that live godly shall suffer persecution. We're going to get into that. Verse 30, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. And Paul's referring to himself. Conflict, agony. That's what the word means. Agon, agony. A picture or word used to describe, again, an athletic contest. Paul, again, was using this metaphor to describe our Christian life. We are God's athletes to whom he has given an authority to show the stuff we are made of. Conflict, which he saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul uses this picture to describe his own untiring work for the gospel of Christ. He was agonosi, agono, agon, agonosomai uh, for the gospel, right? He was striving. He was actually suffering persecution and suffering, suffering a tired body because he was striving with all of his strength and might to do the work of God. Word study or cross-reference study. I want you to know today, dear Christian, that suffering for the gospel is scriptural. 2 Timothy 3.12 But you who have followed my teaching, conduct purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that come to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured. This is Paul talking about his own persecutions. Yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all those who want to live godly, this is where I started to quote the scripture, all those who want to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Yes, that's a promise. That's going to happen, some more than others. We may see more of it now with the way our society has become in the last three years. Philippians 3.10, Paul said, My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. And then there's some other cross-references. I'm going to put all this in the show notes so you can get these cross-references. I want to go on. Another scripture, greater love has no man than this, that he's lay his life down for his friends. Okay. Now we are to Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Philippians 2, 1 and 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, verse 2, Fulfill ye my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. The exhortation that Paul had given in chapter 1, verse 27, is kind of a hope so. He's hoping those things will take place for the Philippians, to be standing fast in one spirit, with one mind, to strive together as a team for the faith. It's kind of a hope so. You know, he's hoping with all his heart this will take place. Uh, as a team for the faith in the gospel, but it's further elaborated on now, especially in verse 2 of Philippians. It re- This repeats the same exhortation in a different way about the exhortation to unity. And that's why I said rallying around unity was the theme. This really gives us some more 
ammunition or attributes of unity here in uh, verse 2. Let's look at this uh, um, in a little more detail. If, okay, he says, if there is any consolation, that could say could be saying, could be since or in view of the fact, is a fact, if there is a consolation in Christ, that's a fact, and yet like so many promises of God, it's, con- it's conditional on how we respond. There's a condition to it. It's a fact, but it won't take place if you don't meet the conditions. You know, you're going to win the the lottery, but you have to meet these conditions. You're going to be given this house, but you have to meet these conditions to get it. Consolation, if there be any consolation. We could say consolation is a certain thing or attribute. That's how the Greeks would look at it, an attribute, a certain thing. Parakalesis is the word in Greek, parakalesis. It's a root word, of course, from what you probably know as parakletos, comforter. It's a meaning, its meaning is clear. That is, it's a summons, especially for help. Consolation, to summon for help. The context always determines the meaning. So some of the meanings here, beautiful meanings for parakalesis. A calling near, a summons, especially for help. An importation, supplication, entreaty, an exhortation admonition, encouragement. Again, consolation, just like this says. Comfort, solace, providing solace, that which affords solace, comfort, or refreshment. That of the messianic salvation, referring to that, uh, as the Messiah as comforter. Persuasive discourse, you know, persuading somebody. Stirring address, instructive, bringing admonition, being conciliatory. A powerful discourse. In view of the fact that the Philippians were under attack to become disunified, starting with these two women and maybe some of the, uh, you know, some of the persecution from the pagans in Philippi, they were under attack to be disunified. Consolation here, the context fits the word of exhortation best. Point: Christ's life should be an exhortation admonition and encouragement for the Philippians to live in a state of harmony with each other to be like-minded. Let me say that. This is an exhortation then, where it says, if there be any consolation, this is an exhortation uh, to be, uh, Christ's life should be an exhortation, admonition, encouragement, for those in Philippi, and for us too, to live in a state of harmony with each other in the church, to be like-minded, to come together like I talked last week about the Flanex, you know, shield to shield, protecting the one on the right, protecting the one on the left, not going off on our own and trying to do something, but working as a team, striving together then as a team. Consolation, exhortation, right? To live uh, in harmony with each other, to be like-minded. If there be any consolation, uh, if there be any exhortation to live in harmony, uh, if there be any comfort, literally is a word, comfort is literally a word which comes, uh, means to come to the side of one, to stimulate or comfort them, you know, when they're under distress, right? It speaks of a persuasive address of really talking to somebody, you know, exhorting them of love, of agape, 
We're talking about an exhortation of comfort, of agape, you know, of comfort, uh, of brought from a heart of agape, God's love, produces the action. It's compelling. You know, Paul says, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm compelled to preach the word of Christ, of comfort, loving, persuasion, and encouragement. Here coming through the instrument of the apostolic urging through Paul for them to live in unity. Let me read that again. Agape produces the action or the compelling of comfort. That is loving persuasion and encouragement. Here coming through the instrument of the apostolic or apostle Paul urging them to live in the unity of the faith. And that's what I'm telling you today on the Kingdom Corner podcast. I'm, I'm exhorting you like Paul would exhort you to live in harmony, to find unity with the body of Christ. Let's look at the third word. We looked at consolation. We looked at comfort of love. Now let's look at fellowship of the Spirit. The word fellowship is koinonia. That is a sharing, a joint participation, an intercourse, an intimacy in godly things together as saints, and also includes God's Spirit. Paul implores implores all of them to participate in common activities and interests of the Holy Spirit, that there should be a natural flow of unity in their midst. So again, become like-minded. Koinonia, a sharing, a joint participation in godly things, together as saints, and includes God's Spirit, of course. And Paul is imploring them all of them to participate in common interests and activities grounded in the Holy Spirit, that there should be then a natural outflow of unity in their midst. When you're in the Spirit together, when you're unified in the Spirit, there can't happen, there, there can't help but be unity and a like-mindedness, right? Problem, not all were living spirit-filled and controlled lives. And we talked about uh, the two ladies, right? They weren't they, they had a conflict, you know, odious and too, soon touchy. They had a conflict amongst them, and Paul was addressing that. Not yet directly, but, you know, enough that they understood what he was talking about. Okay? <clears throat> Let's see. What else do we have? Consolation, comfort of love, fellowship of the Spirit. If any, affection and mercy, or bowels of mercy. Okay? Bowels and mercies or tenderheartedness and compassionate yearnings. These deep emotions and graces of love uh, that came from his guts, his splankna, they would call it in the Greek. Uh, he just brought that all out. He was transparent. He was vulnerable. He was letting it all out before them in hopes that it would, from the Spirit of God, in hopes that it would dispel the bickering and, and bring healing. All right? And healing should come to this relationship. Fulfill. Let's look at verse 2, Philippians 2.2. 2. Fulfill literally means, um, of course, to fill full. Fulfill. Fill full. Be like-minded. Fulfill you mean my joy by being like-minded. Literally think the same thing. Fulfill uh, or fill full. That is fill the cup full of like-mindedness. Fill the cup full of thinking the same thing. This like-mindedness is shown by three elements mentioned in this very verse, in verse 2. A, having the same love. B, 
being in heart agreement, that is soul-to-soul agreement, literally is what that says, soul-to-soul agreement, and finally, thinking one thing, you know. That's why I'm so against these church boards and church eldership meetings where we all have to get to vote on an issue. I don't believe they did that in the New Testament church. They came together and they would pray about an issue until they all became like-minded and they thought the one thing. That's what I believe. And that's what God wants the church to get back to that point. There's no real true unity, no true oneness. Just like I talked about the Israelis and the Palestinians, they may sign on paper a peace accord, but their hearts aren't really at peace. You know, they may put down the physical weapon, but in their hearts, they're still not of one accord. They're not of thinking one thing, right? They're not in heart-to-heart agreement. They don't have the same love. And that's the same with church boards. You can't vote on these things, you know. I could go on and on with that. Translation by Kenneth Wiest. Let's look at that. Fill full my joy by thinking the same thing, having the same love, being in heart-to-heart agreement, thinking the one thing. Let me read that again. Fill full my joy. By thinking the same thing, having the same love, being in heart agreement, thinking the one thing. Kenneth Wiest. All right, let's go on. Let's go on and finish this up here. We are looking at like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord. Let's look at uh, uh, being of one mind, which speaks of oneness. Remember the Flannox reference I gave you of the Roman and Greek armies, how they locked together in that battle formation? Wasn't it was a tree, uh, really the um, it, it was a formation of like a triangle on three sides. It was a real killing machine because they depended on each other, right? They protected each other. They were locked together, sh- uh, shield to shield, right? <clears throat> that you be of one mind and one mouth. Romans fifteen six. Be of one mind and one mouth. Glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about unity and oneness here. Doing a little bit of a parallel study of verses. Acts 4.32 And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. They didn't have to vote on it. They just became of one heart and one soul as they waited on God. Neither said he in any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they all had all things in common. And that kind of refers to when the church came together and people were selling things. I told you about how Ananias and Sapphira, they weren't of one heart and one mind, one soul, and they lied, remember? And God struck them dead. Ephesians 4, 1 to 7. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with peace that binds us. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father all, who is above all, through all, and in all. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. Isn't it interesting in Paul's epistles, not just in Philippians, but in Ephesians, this theme of unity and oneness is seen throughout the epistles. He's, he's writing that letter to, in different ways to all these churches, is he not? 
Let's look at this verse, Ephesians 4, 1 to 7. I just It just struck me here. Let's look at this. Here we go. I, the, Paul, uh, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with the peace that binds us. There is one body, that's one, one body, one Spirit, that's two, two ones, just as you were called to one hope, one hope, that's three ones, at your calling, one Lord, that's four ones mentioned in the verse, one faith, that's five ones mentioned in the verse, one baptism, six mentions of one, one God, that's seven mentions of one. Seven is the perfect number of God. Isn't that interesting? One is used seven times here as describing all these words, right? You go through and read that again, Ephesians 4, 1 to 7. Don't you think then that oneness and unity are important to God? I do. Behold, how good, how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. We talked about that last week, Psalm 133, 1. Ephesians 4, 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring, striving, contending together to keep unity, right? Ephesians 4, 13, till we all come, you know, the gifts were given to men, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Why? to bring us into unity, to bring us into oneness of the faith. Amen. That hasn't happened yet, but it is happening. It's on the move today in the church. Wow. We've gone a long time. We've gone a long time. Let's come back to this next week. I want to stop here at verse 3 because it will get into our next lesson, uh, which is um, having a kenosis encounter. That'll be really good. It all blends together into unity and harmony. God wants us to be one. God wants us to strive together as a team. There's no lone rangers. There's no, you know, stars, as it were. We're all working together in God. Father, I thank you for this word today. I thank you that you are God of one, that you are a God of unity and order and oneness, and that we can have that today. Uh, we look to you, Father. Uh, bring us one in the Spirit. Bring us one as one body to the maturity in Christ that you de desire to see in this body of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you, my friends. Thank you for coming to the Kingdom Corner. See you again next week for another exciting episode from Philippians. Thank you for joining us for another great discussion on The Kingdom Corner, hosted by Matt Guybe. Remember to click the subscribe button so you can be notified of each new episode as it's released. To enjoy an even deeper dive into God's Word, check out Matt's new devotional book, Searching for Significance, a devotional journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. Learn more and even hear from Matt himself on the devotional website, significanceacademy.com. As always, thank you for being a part of the Kingdom Corner.